2: Hello, and welcome to season three. Yes, season three of The Shift. The podcast that aims to tell the no holds barred truth about being a woman post 40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author, Sam Baker. Who better to grab us by the scruff of the neck and thrust us into 2021 at just the point our meagre enthusiasm is starting to wane than Philippa Perry. Philippa has been a psychotherapist for 20 years. She's also an agony aunt, presenter, and author of the bestseller, the book you wish your parents had read and your children would be glad you did. A clever, funny and sane guide that acknowledges they fuck you up your mum and dad and then help you try not to do the same.
3: I like people to take control of their lives if possible, yeah. I think it's great to <laughs> be in control rather than be a, a feather being blown around by the wind.
2: Philippa is completely fascinating as she talks about getting hold of the steering wheel of life, Why plummeting oestrogen levels made her homicidal, not suicidal. Why women should stop playing minds smaller than yours. And her own battle to silence her inner critic. And if you want to know how to make a fuck cushion, you've come to the right place. How are you, apart from your tax bill? Um,
3: I've had a sort of sore throat since July, but you really don't want to know about that. I think it might be pollution. I'm not sure. It's not COVID. I've had several tests.
2: Oh, God, good. My, my opera singing's obviously on hold. The, yeah. <laughs> the only thing that's worse than my singing is my dancing, put it that way. Oh, musical then. <laughs> no, not musical at all. And I always think that when I watch Strictly, I always think, oh, I would love to do that. And I think, no, you'd be the embarrassing one that wouldn't get through. They do need fodder for the first week so people aren't too <laughs> prepared
3: to see people go, you know. And it would be quite fun just to do that for the crack, wouldn't it?
2: Maybe I'll keep this bit in, in the hope that someone will listen and go, oh, we've got next year's big joke candidate. There you go. Before we talk about your book, let's talk a bit about you and how you got into psychotherapy and life, the universe and everything. I
3: was always interested in psychotherapy. And uh, in the old days, when I could read nonfiction, I used to read it avidly and learn everything I could about psychology and existentialism and um psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and i just thought it was a little hobby a little interest because i was actually at art school you know, It was feeding ideas for art, but I resisted it for as long as I could because I never thought I could be a psychotherapist. But why? Why? Well, I don't know. A bit scatty, not intellectual, never did well at school, dyslexic. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Anyway, I started by volunteering for the Samaritans. When I was volunteering for the Samaritans, I was very interested in this idea of whether it was safe to explore your feelings or whether it was better to keep them all repressed in a little box, Mm. because I'd been brought up to, if you don't think about it, it will go away. It was quite a strong argument for that and it does work to some extent. But I was very curious about what would happen to people if they explored their feelings. I suppose when I was a Samaritan, I was on a bit of a quest really to see whether it was safe. And then I found out by listening to lots of people's feelings that not only was it safe, it was therapeutic and it was good. And I didn't realize that that's why i volunteered to be a Samaritan. I thought I was being, oh, let's put something back into the community. No, I wasn't. <laughs> when I found out that exploring your feelings is good for you. That's what I wanted to discover because it was like I couldn't trust reading that exploring your feelings is good for you like I had in all the literature i would read. I really wanted to find out and did the Samaritans for about four years and I found out. And then from that, I decided, well, maybe I'll just do a beginner's counselling course and that will be enough and I won't do any more after that. Yeah. that yeah. Yeah.
2: One thing led to another. That keep a lid on it thing is really prevalent, isn't it? That kind of keep the worms in the can, just keep it over there. But keeping it in indefinitely.
3: I heard it explained once, like, if you are an employer and you are an authoritarian and you rule with a rod of iron, you know, people are going to riot, they're going to be mutinies. they're going to go on strike, you're not going to have a cooperative workforce. So the idea is that you listen to your employees, brackets feelings, and really take on board what they say and make executive decisions where they feel listened to and looked after, but you are in control. So you're you're driving the chariot rather than the chariot driving you is the
2: idea. Do you think your role as a therapist is to help people drive the chariot? I like people to take control of their lives, if possible. Yeah, I think it's great
3: (laughs) to be in control rather than be a, a feather being blown around by the wind. I think it's fun to get hold of what one client of mine called the steering wheel
2: of life. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, actually.
3: But then along with choice comes responsibility. So I'm not saying it's an easy ride. Because if you are you know unknowingly a victim of your circumstances and then suddenly with greater awareness you realize that you can have a different way of operating in the world then you're taking responsibility there's some comfort in sort of getting stuck in the victim role really because then nothing's your fault so with choice comes responsibility
2: it's really interesting because one of the things I said I wasn't going to talk about the book but now of course I'm immediately going to talk about the book one of the things when I was interviewing all the women I spoke to for the book That steering wheel analogy really fits because what a lot of people said and certainly how I felt was like when I was in perimenopause and I really felt like I was literally doing handbrake turns, my hormones or whatever it was, was literally there was no steering wheel. It was just like constant wheelies and handbrake turns and complete loss of control.
3: like the way Caitlin Moran talked about the menopause, saying that estrogen was the nicey-nice drug we've been on all our lives. And then suddenly when oestrogen drops down, we don't put up with anything anymore and we become, well, let's say a little more assertive.
2: Yeah, it's exactly that. Don't they call um, oestrogen the biddability hormone? So you're biddable and then when it wanes, you cease to be biddable. You start being like, what the fuck? Find your own keys or whatever, you know. Yeah.
3: There was a novel I read years and years ago called, I can't remember who it's by, my bad, called Behaving Badly. And it was about a woman who was very acquiescent all her life and sort of like, oh, you want to leave me and go off with your younger woman? Yes, well, I'll just be very good about that and everything. And then she said, yeah. you know, I think she was about 55. And she said, yeah, I'm not going to be so biddable anymore. And she said, I'm going to live with you to her daughter was absolutely horrified. And she did yeah. exactly what she wanted. It was
2: great. Did that happen to you? When
3: my estrogen levels started to drop, Rather than get angry, I sort of more imploded And I just got hot flushes that were so distracting That I couldn't really do anything And I got depressed And maybe homicidal Not suicidal, but definitely homicidal
1: Go away!
3: And I put up with that for about two months and I got HRT and I love HRT, love it. You're not supposed to be on it for more than three years or something. I've been on it for about 15 years.
2: Really, you're not the first person I've spoken to who said that. The
3: trouble is with bad temper, it doesn't only explode, it implodes. The critical voice sort of got free reign and that is not good for me. And so, yeah, I love a bit of HRT. I go to a special HRT clinic because the NHS... I've got guidelines that they really can't give it to me after 10 years or something. So I go to see, um, I, go, I, get, I get it quite expensively. It, I have to do a full well woman check every year where I have an internal scan and a
2: blood test and,
3: and everything to make sure I'm safe and not killing myself. But I'd probably kill someone else
2: if I wasn't on it. Yeah, it's really interesting. One of the things that really struck me is like, given how we're mo- meant to be like this talking society, like particularly women are meant to talk all the time. How much we don't. Yeah, we don't much. In fact, I think men talk just as much
3: as women do, but less to the point. <laughs> what they're really talking about when they talk about football is, you know, I'm better than you or something. But we'll actually talk about what we're talking about rather than play those minds bigger than yours games. We do play minds smaller than yours, yeah. which is when you say to your friend, Oh, I love your dress again. Oh, this whole thing, I got it from Oxfam. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, rather than, yeah, it's great, isn't it? No, we play mine smaller than yours because we're frightened of being too big because we're not allowed to be big as women, aren't
2: we? We have to be small. Do you think we'll ever shake that off? Yeah. Kind of, oh, here's my box. I need to stay in it. You know. I think that you know, men have imposter
3: syndrome too, and you'd like some people to get back in their bloody boxes, wouldn't you? Yeah, totally. I think, yeah. I think there's, a, there's a sliding scale, and I think if we call it the sliding scale of entitlement. Some people have got too much, and some people haven't got enough. And I think polarized in any direction isn't great. The middle ground. The middle ground is where sanity is.
2: How do we find that? You're going to say by going to therapy.
3: Um, no, <laughs> no, we don't need to go to therapy. Well, if you're chaotic, you need a bit of structure. And if you're rigid, you need a bit of flexibility.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Easy. Yeah. Easy peasy.
3: Some people need more of a structure and some people need less of a structure. So one size does not fit all, really.
2: No, you um, earlier you said you mentioned your inner critic. There was a mention in the book, a really brilliant line actually, where you talk about when Flo was a teenager and you were inner critiquing or outer critiquing yourself in the mirror, and Flo kind of said, "Can you stop that? I don't like it." Yes, brilliant. Tell me about that. What a girl!
3: It's funny, isn't it? Because it's what my mother did to me. My mother would go like this: "That oh my god, look." Oh, oh, I've got little wrinkles. Oh, oh no. Oh, oh no, what's this? Oh, oh no, it's a roll of fat. Oh no. And I used to lap it up. And I used to think, "Mm, I'm pretty gorgeous, actually. But, you know, when I became her age, I found myself doing the same thing. And I wasn't really aware I was doing it even until my daughter said, stop it. And I thought, yeah, because I don't want her to do this. I don't want her to look in the mirror and think she should be conforming to some patriarchal idea of beauty or something. No, we don't need that kind of inner critic that we should be something that we're not.
2: Did your inner critic kick in when you got a bit older or was it always there uh, yeah. on your shoulder? Well,
3: physically, it did. I can remember sort of when I first noticed my turkey net at the hairdressers. I think she must have got quite bored of hearing about that. <laughs> <laughs> But then also I get who am I to write a book? Why do I know more about this than anybody else? And I'm having a terrible time with it on my next book at the moment, thinking, should I just give up? Should I pay back the advance? Yeah, I'm having a pretty rough time because I have no idea if what I'm doing or what I'm
2: saying is any good, really. Did you not feel at all validated by the phenomenal success of the book you wish your parents had read? That's that book. This book, oh
3: dear, dear.
2: <laughs> What's the next book about then? I wish I knew I keep
3: getting absolutely lost. I had a sort of overarching idea, which was that what psychotherapists do when you go and see a psychotherapist that's extremely useful to clients is that they separate your stories, your content from your process and your structure. So for instance, a client would come and see me and they tell me a story about how they were right and someone else was wrong and this will be at work and I'd get swept away with it I think yeah you're right they're wrong I guess get really away away with it and then I'd notice that the stories week after week after week would have the same structure and almost the same timetable and then I go ah hang on this isn't external this is the past repeating itself onto the present this is your structure this is your process so the process I was thinking about was like I saw it um this is repeated with her permission I saw a junior doctor who always found something that her bosses were doing wrong that was endangering life okay that was the thing and she'd have a very kind of like childlike response to authority and it was like somehow helpless like so instead of being able to sort of cooperate and collaborate at work and be a sort of she was always sort of in this sort of helpless victim role Gran was in an old people's home and Gran's EpiPen was out of date and she thought they should have noticed that you know you could have killed my grandmother, so it was the same thing. The authority, the people that run the home, are wrong, they're endangering life. The EpiPen's out of date, she explodes and really makes a lot of enemies. And also at her kids' school, you know, the same thing happened again, so it was always like. Against authority, I know what's right. You are a danger. So we had to sort of unpick it and find out when was she first in danger? You know, what happened? Who really let her down? Because she's always finding that dynamic again and again and again. She's looking for an authority figure that's let her down. And, of course, we found the authority figure that really did let her down. And when she realized that she had power over that now because she's an adult now, She was estranged from her mother when she came to see me. But, you know, the mother has no power over her now. And, you know, the mother was dangerous you know the mother did endanger her life the mother was negligent and she didn't want to face that because that is just too frightening and too upsetting so rather than face the original pain she kept repeating the other pain again and again and again so that is an example of process and we all have process we all have the earliest dynamics that we have that is the blueprint for how we relate and respond to the world which sort of happened when we were infants and our earliest environment. And rather than responding to the world as it is now, we're stuck in that old blueprint. So we get characters to fit the character Mm. that we had when we were children. And this is why therapy such as Family Constellations is so powerful, because people can then when they sort of enact it like that, can see how they're bringing forward the dynamics of the past onto the present. So I just thought, wouldn't it be great if we were all aware of our process and could be just by reading my book?
2: You need to write the book about relationships, the book you wish your husband had read. The book
3: you wish you'd read 10 years ago, but it's still not too late.
2: Yeah, that's what I was trying to do. In fact, I wish I'd nicked that subtitle. That would have been really good.
3: (laughs) what, the book you wish you'd read 10 years ago?
2: Yeah, because that's what I wrote. I wrote the book that I wished had existed when Mm. I went into all the shit.
3: I wrote the book I wished I'd had as a parent. And so I put all my psychotherapeutic knowledge of talking to adults who had been children and wrote it from their point of view, really, so that parents could have the benefit of seeing things not only as a parent, but also as how a therapist would look at it, so that their kids won't need therapy later, basically.
2: But you've done a pretty good job, haven't you? I mean... I've been lucky. She's turned out well. That's such a girl thing to say. It wasn't me doing a good job. I was just lucky. Well...
3: I I was really lucky that the apple didn't fall too far from the tree and that naturally we get on, because that's not guaranteed that someone's going to see the world how you see the world. And, of course, she does see the world differently to how how I see the world. And, yes, I have done a good job in that I can see it from her point of view and my point of view, rather than thinking she's wrong, I'm right. But um, now my nose is running.
2: Uh, Off you go, that's fine. Hang on, I'll just wipe it on a bit of soft (laughs) fur. Can wipe it on the fuck cushion, Philippa.
3: No, not that. It's not (laughs) dry-foolable, is.
2: (laughs) I really want one now. Now I've seen it. I really want one.
3: Tell you how to make one. What you do is you um, just write fuck on a piece of um, needlework you know, that um, open yeah, kind thing of that you do cross-stitch off. Just write fuck, right? And then fill in what you've written in a colour. And then all I've done is go round it in other colours like that so it zings out. So I've just gone round and round the fuck letters with different colours.
2: Great. So you, know
3: you can copy that. You're welcome.
2: Thank you very much. You. Wave your copyright on that for me.
3: You've also. <laughs> Somebody told me the other day they'd they'd taken everything from the book you wish to make a sort of uh, board with this sort of mood board for kids so they could talk about their feelings better. And I didn't think, I want copyright of my ideas. I think, great, good, spread it out. I didn't write a book to keep it all to myself.
2: No, well, that just means it really resonated, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, when I was reading the book yesterday, it made me remember when I had therapy. It was the same time as the film Inside Out came out. Mm. And I actually thought that film was completely brilliant. It was like a light bulb turning on. I was like, oh, there are five emotions. And I remember I was talking to my therapist. And <laughs> she said, that film, she said, it's so simplistic. And I was like, there are more than five? Christ. Yeah. If you look at my book, Couch Fiction,
3: you see that the therapist in that hands to James, the client, an alphabetical list of emotions. And it goes on for pages and pages and pages, like there's hundreds of them. And later, when she's getting him to talk more about his feelings. He always gives his feelings in alphabetical order, like he's running through the list in his mind. It's a little joke that I don't expect anyone to pick up on. But...
2: You probably have to have had therapy to get that joke because you've seen that list. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. How was it working with Flo? Because you wrote the book, didn't you? And then you've resurrected it. Absolute dream. Very few edits. We got on fine. Didn't have one argument. Marvellous. You've been an agony aunt for about eight years now? Yeah, I love it. Yeah. How does that differ? Tell me about how that differs from being a a psychotherapist. It's
3: brilliant, right? Somebody comes to you with a dilemma and you can kind of see in a flash what the problem is. And if you're an agony aunt, you can just write it. If you are a therapist, your job is to help them find their inner wisdom. You're there to help them to grow. We do obviously tell people what to do, but it doesn't actually work. It's so frustrating sometimes, waiting for someone to realize what their issue is when you can see it in a flash. But when you're an agony aunt, you can just tell them, it's great. Not that I don't tell them when I'm a therapist, okay? Because they might come to you with like, how can I be a better wife so that my husband loves me? And we think, That is not the right question, girlfriend. (laughs) It's probably what you say, like you say, why? Or how do you get in this position where you think you're not good enough? You ask all those questions and they have to find all the answers. So it's much, much longer to be a therapist than it is to be an agony aunt. And what you're doing is producing copy that other people might get something from. I think what the people writing in get from it is actually writing their problem down They can then hear it for the first time and they can go, actually, maybe I don't even need to send this. I've kind of sorted it out by writing it.
2: Your acne are on red, so your problems are probably coming from women like 30s upwards. What are the most common problems you get asked?
3: Why are other people so horrible? really well they never say it like that they just sort of say how can I sort out my family because my brothers won't talk to each other and I'm the only person they'll talk to and I'm, I'm tired of being in this role and you know basically why can't everybody just get on is a good one and then another one which I'm getting depressingly frequently is from a woman who sounds competent sounds very nice going, you know, I divorced my husband six years ago because I found out he was having serial affairs. And then three years ago, I went back on the dating scene. And, you know, I've had two four four-month relationships or something like that. But what am I doing wrong? Because I don't seem to be able to find a partner. And I sort of write back, you're doing nothing wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're doing nothing wrong. I mean, I can't, categorize them really the problems that come in. I mean I obviously get some heartbreaking ones. There's uh people that think they're being bullied, there's people that can't find a man, people who can't get rid of a man once they've found one. <laughs> oh, when men write in, that's a laugh. Can you tell my
2: wife she's wrong because? I go, I don't think so. <laughs> So my mouth is just dropped open. I don't want to generalise, but I'm going to generalise. It sounds like women ask what they can change and men ask how you can make her change.
3: Yeah, there you go. That's quite a bit of that, yeah. Man. Sad, isn't it? What culture have we created for our children? God. Anyway, we're doing our best to stop it, aren't we? we One
2: are. way or another. It's sad, but it also makes me really angry. But that might just be because I'm 54 and I am angry. (laughs) I remember when I first
3: saw you, because I was desperate to be an agony aunt. I really wanted to be an agony aunt. And so I had um, antennae out for any editor of a magazine and at the time I first saw you I knew that you were editor of Red and I think we were at a Damien Barr's literary salon when it was over at Shoreditch House. Oh yeah. And I think Claire Balding was talking about her book. I remember that one yeah. Yeah and I saw you there and I thought that's her I'm gonna send her an email. (laughs) And you never did. I think I did but I think by the time I sent an email to Red you'd left. Yeah. um, I did get the job at Red even though after you'd left by then But um,
2: I would have given it to you in a heartbeat would you? well I would. you're the person who came after you did so I was lucky you were not lucky Stop with the lucky. Why do you
3: think we still need agony aunts? I don't think we do need agony aunts. I think people like reading. I think if you have a problem now, you probably ask a Reddit group or something, and people do. But I think people like reading them, and I I don't think you get as many letters in as you might have done if you were Claire Rayner in a he- in a heyday because there wasn't the internet to us then but when I put a shout out on Twitter saying give me your dilemmas because people know me and they're used to reading the column I do get quite a lot in so I'm going to say I'm lucky again you know people <laughs> write <laughs> um, but it's such a privilege to do that job and I and I love it and I don't think we need agony Arts necessarily I just think that People like them. People like the idea that someone will read what they're writing. And I do try and reply, and I hope I do, to every single email I get. Wow. What is interesting about the letters I get in is 99% of them are well thought out, serious, respectful, and interesting, rather than silly. That's interesting. Incredible. Isn't it? I just think it's maybe the atmosphere of Red magazine. I don't know. That's what they are. Yeah, the quality of the reader. Good quality reader. That's what it is. <laughs> One
2: of the things that really interested me when I was writing The Shift, I spoke to, well, it's nearly 100 women now. They all had it going on. You know, they were all successful in their different ways. I mean they were ordinary women, but they all were all doing their thing and they all had they all had it nailed down. But what really struck me was how even though they were all good girls, they'd all done their research on the internet about, you know, menopause and all of that. But even then, there's still a massive lack of knowledge. I mean I had a lack of knowledge, but they did Yeah, I, I knew about hot flushes. I
3: did not know about mood swings at all. So I felt terrible really really bad when I started to drop estrogen and the doctor wasn't particularly interested in the mood swing they were only interested in the physical symptoms of the hot flush thank god I had hot flushes otherwise I might never have got the drugs
2: yeah you probably wouldn't have known I mean I felt like I completely lost myself I didn't know that that was perimenopause I just thought I was losing it
3: (laughs) You're having a different experience of the world than you had the week before because you've got a different
2: mental makeup because you haven't got Um, oestrogen. And when you say that, it makes it sound so, well, yeah, obviously, but we don't know. No, it's sort of the
3: average person is thought to be a man. That's the trouble Mm. with medicine. So medicine tends to be man's medicine. It's funny, isn't it, that we have a branch of medicine that is, you know, obstrexics or whatever it's called, women's medicine, gynaecology. But we don't have a men's section, not really. There's a bit of urology maybe, but that's even for both sections. It's sort of like men are normal, women are you know, a subgroup, and yet we are 50% of the
2: human race. Yeah, it's like everything is the, like in, you know, your newspaper, the whole newspaper is for men, and then you had the women's pages. It seems yeah. like even medicine is like that. That's it crazy. is. The other thing
3: is what's in the women's pages, maybe, you know, stuff about feelings or something, applies to all. It's like men who won't read books by women, mm-hmm. and yet women never say, I won't read a book by a man, although I have started to. <laughs> and I am sort of like when uh, we're deciding what to watch on telly. If something is just all about men and only men in it, I'm not interested. I've had enough of their world actually. I want the female perspective now. So I'm just
2: so incensed that they think they're the normal rather than no, you're another group, you're men. It's like all the diversity and equality. It's like, really, women shouldn't even be in that conversation. Like you say, women are 51%, just under 51% of the population.
3: Yeah, it should be. Have we got too many men? Have we got too many white men? Yes, I think we have got an overrepresentation of white men here. We need to redress the balance. We need all women in positions of power for at least 300 years to get things back on an even keel. Do
2: you think you've got bolshier as you've got older?
3: Slightly more confident, but I was starting from a very low position where confidence was concerned. But I am more confident now. I wouldn't call it bolshie. I'd
2: call it... A little bit surer of my mind than I used to be. I think that's the thing isn't it? I just did that classic thing women are bolshee and bossy. Feisty is the one I can't bear.
3: Oh, it's I'm, awful. I can't wait to call a man feisty. Oh you're a bit feisty aren't you? <laughs>
2: Can you imagine how
3: they'd react? They probably wouldn't understand what you're talking about. I remember once when I was driving down a fairly narrow lane in Hampstead on the way to the women's pond, actually. And a man was driving in the opposite direction and he decided he couldn't get through and he wanted everyone to reverse back. And I said, no, you can get through there. There's plenty of room. went, No, no, my car's too wide. I said, no, I think you've got a funny idea about how wide things are. (laughs) Girlfriend in car, laugh. And do you want me to drive through there? Because it I'll drive your car through there if you like, because it's perfectly there. And it was like incensed to think I'd drive, and of course he went through. And then the car behind, which was another man who I had released from being stuck in a lane, said, oh, you got on your high horse then, didn't you? I didn't. I was just saying, you can get through. It's okay. Do you want me to drive? And that's the first time I think I realised, oh my God, he would never have talked to a man like that. It's just that he was threatened by a woman who can drive and can judge distances. You know, we're not supposed to be
2: good at spatial stuff. You know, I'm great. (laughs) What's your emotional age? 63. That's your actual age too. And four.
3: (laughs) I have got an inner four-year-old who is fantastic. I love her. She really doesn't give a fuck because she hasn't learnt to yet. And she just asks for exactly what she wants when she wants it. I would really like to integrate her into my adult, but they're so split off. And she only comes out when she feels completely safe. So she'll only come out in, in close friends and family situations or people I've been working with a long time and I really like. So it's, it's, I can't actually turn her on now because, you know, she only comes out you know, in those sort of close family and friends situations. Has she always been there or is she more prevalent now? No, she's always, always been there. And if I could only integrate her a bit more, I'm far more reasonable than her.
2: Yeah, there's some, um, I don't know whether you've read it, but in Glennon Doyle's Untamed, she talks about that age as a child, or she put it a bit later, I think. I, I want to say eight, but it might have been 10. But when you lose your kind of sparky little girl self or when it's taken away from you as as the things you're meant to conform to start to pile in okay i'm going to ask you the questions i always ask okay great give us a book recommendation a book you would push on everybody
3: well i'm very fond of a thousand ships by natalie haynes really i haven't read that is it good so good it made me weep i'm actually weeping thinking about it because it's retelling one of the myths that our civilization is built on but through the eyes of women so we're talking about troy and the wooden horse and odysseus and all of that but through the eyes of women a retelling and she's a proper classicist she knows her stuff and she's also very entertaining. She's written a lot of novels before and, you know, she does stand up for the classics on radio Four. she's very funny and she's just dug deep to write this it's not only what it's like to be a woman it's what it's
2: always like to have been a woman that's good one is good if you could give one piece of advice to younger women what would it be i think it's um don't let anyone
3: distort your instincts because our instincts keep us safe we are so as women treated unconsciously by the culture i think to fit in to be convenient so that when you're feeling something and somebody says don't be silly don't think you're being silly i'm not saying your gut is always right i'm saying don't throw your gut away just because someone else is experiencing the same situation in a different way i suppose what i'm asking everybody to do is practice intersubjectivity but that's getting very very
2: academic yeah
3: who's your old bird role model my old bird role model I love Miriam Margolis. She's says what she thinks and she's funny and she's wise and she's not trying to be anything she's not. I love her. I think she's great. Cool. Uh, what's your superpower? Got the dark arts of therapy, haven't I? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> when life was normal, I used to go to quite a lot of receptions and dinners and fundraisers and things like that. And so I'd quite often be sitting next to a stranger at dinner. And my superpower was to crack on past the polite conversation. I say things like, what's foreground for you at the moment? And if they'd say, oh, I just love this lovely Matisse exhibition we've been to see. Go, I'll give you
2: one more chance. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what
3: concerns
2: you at the moment. Wow. You know. I bet you had people kind of going, oh, God, I'm not sitting next to her. Move my, move my name tag.
3: No, they love it. I mean, I get interested because they're saying, I just can't get on with my daughter. It's really upsetting me. And I go, oh, my God, that sounds so painful. And people go up to my husband afterwards and go, wow, was amazing. Your wife's amazing. <laughs> I'm not amazing. It's just like I have got the dark arts of therapy. And sometimes I will use them to crack open a nut. Last one. How many fucks do you give? I give quite a lot of fucks. And it upsets me quite a lot that I do. I'm very upset about Brexit. I'm very upset um, we've decided to separate from an organisation that's meant there's been largely peace in Europe for the longest there's ever been. And I think that is a step backwards. And I give a lot of fucks about
2: that. Are your fucks targeted now in a way they maybe weren't before? I care what people think about me because I do care what people think of me.
3: I do. I think it's important not to go all or nothing on the caring too much or not caring enough. I think, you know, we should be nice to other people and we shouldn't make other people feel bad. And I want people to feel generally good. So I do give fucks, but are hopefully not at the expense of my integrity or form. You know, I don't want to lose my form. I don't want to crumble, but I do want to be considerate.
2: Good answer. Thank you,
3: Philippa. Okay. Thanks a lot. And don't forget to tell people to buy the paperback of the book you wish your parents had read and your children were glad you did. And there's an extra
2: chapter in there that wasn't in the hardback. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on Twitter at Sam Baker and Instagram at the other sam baker, using the hashtag The Shift. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate and subscribe because it really does help other people find us.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.